might have your own words. It is certainly in some ways a mysterious book, a puzzling book, but it is a powerful book. And the reason why it's such a powerful book is because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. That's what makes it such a powerful book. That's its title. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we've seen literally the term revelation is apocalypse. It's the apocalypse, which simply means in the original language, the unveiling of. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's like the curtains of heaven are opened. And what the Holy Spirit does in this book, and I love the introductory uh, graphic, because the windows of heaven are open, the doors of heaven are open. What the Holy Spirit does is he opens windows and doors into unseen spiritual realities. That's what makes it so powerful. And it unveils who Jesus is. And if we can't see him with our physical eyes, but if we have spiritual eyes to see him as he's revealed to us, he will change our lives. We will love him with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, with all of our strengths. If we really see who Jesus is, we will worship him with all of our beings. And the book is written so that we would worship him. Jesus is unveiled so that we would respond with wholehearted, full-lived worship. And that's really the issue of our lives, church families. We enter into 2021. We're already two weeks there. Question is, who will you worship in 2021? You will worship something or someone. The question is not, will you worship? The question is, whom or what will you worship? Because worship is instinctive. To our humanity, we're created to worship. Birds are created to fly in the air. Fish are created to swim in the sea. People are created to worship, and every pe person on the planet worships something. They put something at the center and the throne of their lives. And so the question for you and me in 2021 is, who will you worship? Will you worship the powers of this age? Or will you worship the risen, glorified Jesus Christ who rules the universe? Will you follow the beast with all of his seductive powers in our community? Or will you follow the lamb and live a sacrificial life? Will you live by the values of Babylon the harlot? Or will you live by the values of the new Jerusalem, the city of God that's coming down from heaven? Whom will you worship, New Hope Kailua? Whom will I worship in 2021? That's the issue. That's why the book of Revelation is written to reveal Jesus Christ and the fullness of who he is so that we would worship him and follow him and experience all of the life that he desires for us. That we, we, we would love him with all of our hearts and experience the fullness of life that the life-giving, risen, glorified Jesus offers us. So last week we started our journey, well, two weeks ago, but last week we looked into that first window, that first window into heaven in Revelation chapter 1, and we saw the risen, glorified, powerful Jesus Christ. This morning we want to take the next step and say, what is his word to us? Because last week we just looked at who he is. But I want to review for a moment, because we cannot separate the two, who is speaking to us and what his message is. I hope you and I will have ears to hear a very powerful and personal message to you from the risen Christ. 
But let's look at the one who is speaking first. And uh, we won't put these words on the screen, but let me just read them. And if you didn't catch last week's message, this is the beauty of technology and Kainoa and our wonderful tech team. Um, you can look at last week's message and review what we uh, looked at, the personal presence of Jesus in our midst, the risen king. Let me just read the words to you because they won't be on the screen, but you can review them or you can pull them up on your own device. It says this, this is window number one, the risen Jesus, he's powerful beyond imagination, but don't miss this, he's present with us, he walks among his people. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, this is Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, those are the churches, he'll explain later. And don't miss this, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Who, what, what's he, he's talking about Daniel's revelation of this powerful, glorious, heavenly king who it comes on the clouds and all the beauty of heaven and, and, the, and, and he's going to rule forever and he's given authority and glory from the ancient of days. That's who he's talking about, heaven's king. Someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his head. Well, his clothing gives away his identity. He's the heavenly high priest. That's the clothing of the high priest. He's our perfect representative in heaven. He's offered the perfect sacrifice. Sins once for all. He's made us right with God. He's our heavenly king. He's our heavenly high priest. And then he says, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Well, again, if you read your Old Testament, that's a reference to the ancient of days. This heavenly king in all of his glory, who's the king priest, he shares in the fullness of who God is. And he, he has, he, he's ageless. <laughs> and he's wise. And he's pure. That's the image that's given to us. And his eyes were like blazing fire. He sees into our lives with penetrating and purifying insight. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, strong and powerful and purifying. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters, like a powerful waterfall, overwhelming with authority. His right hand, he held seven stars. Well, the stars are the messengers of the churches, but the stars in that culture were also the stars of the universe, the cosmic powers of the universe. And this heavenly king, this glorious risen Jesus, has sovereign authority over the churches and over the universe. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. When he speaks, the instrument of his communication into our lives is, is sharp, and it penetrates right into our inner beings and exposes us for who we are and our intentions and our motivations and our inner life. He speaks with penetrating and and yes, purifying words. And his face was like the sun, shining all in its brilliance. It's like the most brilliant, uh, resplendent glory in our universe is our sun. And that's the best description you can have. But when it's his face, and it turn, he, when he turns his face towards us, Old Testament uh, prayer of the, uh, the uh, priesthood was bringing God's blessing of graciousness and shalom. When God turns his face towards you in all of its brilliance, it's with blessing of grace and peace. This is John's revelation. If we would have eyes to see the risen king in all of his glory, he is the one who loves us and leads us. He is the one who 
set us free from our sins by shedding his blood. He gave his very life. He paid the ultimate sacrifice to bring us into relationship with himself. He is the one who, he's the king, but he makes us a kingdom. In other words, he brings, brings us into his family, and we become part of his royalty as his children. And he's the high priest, but he makes us a kingdom of priests because we will serve the living God forever, this life, the world to come, all of this out of his heart of love. And he says he walks among us. Don't miss that. He's not, he's the coming king, but he's not coming from a distant universe where he's aloof and he's unaware. No, he's walking right among us. And when he comes in his second coming, he's just stepping right out of invisibility into visibility into our lives because he is as real. You can't see him with your eyes, but he's right here in the building. And because our church is meeting in living rooms, he's sitting right on the couch next to you if you're online. He is vitally present among his people. He's not above his people, looking down on his people. He's not outside his people, looking in on his people. He's walking among his people, and he knows, and he knows, and he knows. And so when we read his word, he's going to say, I know this about you. I know this about you, church at Ephesus. I know this about you, church at Smyrna. I know this about you, people at New Hope Kailua, because I'm walking right among you, and I see everything that's going on in your lives, and I care, and I care. He is vitally present and he's vitally powerful. And this is why we worship him. He loves us. He freed us from our sins. And one of the ways he loves us is to speak into our lives. Think about that for a moment. For two chapters, he's going to speak into the lives of those seven historical churches. But he's going to speak into our lives right here at New Hope Kailua. Why? Because he loves us. The one who sees with penetrating insight into our lives is the one who loves us. And what do you do? When you love someone, you speak into their lives. And he's going to speak words of affirmation, words of praise. And he's going to speak words of correction, even words of rebuke. Why? Because he loves us. And he's going to speak words of encouragement. If only you do this. And he's going to speak words of promise and reward. If you get this right in your life, you, there's good things ahead of you. You know what? As I thought about this, that this last week, how much speaking into the lives of people is a way of loving them. And what we have Jesus doing in these chapters is the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus for his heavenly glory, his heavenly power, but yes, his heart of love for his people. Because he speaks into their lives with love and correction and encouragement. Those of us that are parents get this. That what do we do with our children as they're growing up particularly? We speak into their lives and we speak words of encouragement when we see them doing the right thing. Good job. When they need to be corrected. Now, you know, Martha and I raised four sons. Three of them never had to be corrected. One always had to be corrected. That was Pastor Mark. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Any of us as parents know that every child needs words of encouragement, words of affirmation, words of correction. And yes, times words of warning. If you keep doing that, bad things are going to happen. But if you get this right, good things are going to happen. And yes, words of reward and blessing in the future. All of that is part of a, a loving parent caring for their child. Well, here you have the risen, glorified Jesus speaking out of a heart of love to his people. And that's what's going on. To affirm us, to correct us, to encourage us, and to reward us. And he speaks to those churches, but he speaks to our church. Now, just before we look at the first message, this is the person who's speaking. The loving glorified, 
powerful, risen Jesus who walks among us. And you can't see him with your eyes, but he's just as real as some physical, tangible object. And um, he walks among his people. He knows and he loves, and he's going to minister to us through his word. I just wanted to point out how important this is to listen to his word. Um, this is a little bit technical, but I'm gonna, it'll come up on the screen. But note the central importance of Jesus speaking to us. And I hope you can read the font. I asked him to put it all on one slide, but some of you may realize there's a literary feature. If you study literature, it's called chiasm. It's from the Greek word chi. But here's the point. It's a literary device that the Holy Spirit inspires Mark with, and, or uh, inspires uh, the Apostle John with. And um, there's a chiasm in this revelation of Jesus. Okay? A chiasm is a parallelism, but it's an inverse parallelism where number, the first thing and the last thing are parallel, the second thing and the second last thing are parallel, and the whole point of a chiasm, literally, is to, to flag what's really important is at the center. It's the heart of the matter. It's the center of the inverse parallelism. Okay, so you can see this in your notes, or uh, you have it on your device. If, good reason to, unload, to uh, download the New Hope Kailua app so you get the notes on your app. But the first thing is this impression. The first impression is glory. He's heaven's king. He's the son of man. And blessing. That's the point of the high priest. He brings all of God's blessings into our lives. That is parallel with the last impression. His face, brilliant light, glory, and blessing. Because when he turns his face to you, it's blessing. Do you see the parallelism between the first and the last thing? The second thing and the second last thing. The eyes and the mouth, well, those are two instruments of relationship. How does he have a relationship with us? He sees us through his eyes, if you will, and he speaks to us with his mouth. That's the parallelism. They're instruments of relationship. And the next two things are instruments of capability. They're things that exercise power. His feet, your feet move you around. They give you the power to, to travel. And his hands are a representative of his actions and his sovereign power. Those are two instruments of his capability, of what he's able to do. And all of those things are parallel, but at the center, don't miss, at the heart of it is his voice. Powerful, like rushing waters. For two chapters, he's going to speak with his voice into our lives. And the Holy Spirit inspired John to write this, to say, this is really, don't miss this. Don't miss his word into your life. Have ears to hear his word. And he's going to speak with authority and with power into our lives. So what's his message this morning? What's his first message? And I don't think it's by accident. I think it's not just first chronologically. I believe it's first in importance. What's the number one thing that Jesus would want to say to you and me this morning? To the people among whom he walks. To the people whom he loves. Well, he's going to say that message in his church, in his message to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's read together. Chapter 2, this is Jesus' first message. The risen, glorified, one who loves his people, walks among them, sees into their hearts, and this is his message. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Now, Who's the angel? We saw last week. It might be a human angel. It might be the preaching pastor of those churches, or it might be a heavenly. The word can mean either of those things. But what is very clear, it might be a, a heavenly being who's assigned as a guardian angel of that local church. 
That's a really cool idea, and I won't take the time in this message, but you can look through the New Testament and see how God has a role for angels in the life of his local church. Another message for another day. But what's very clear is his message is to us. It's through an angel, but it's to the church. It's through an angel, but it's to your life and to my life. And before we look at what that message is personally and powerfully to your life and my life, let's just consider for a moment, and this is the right way to read the book of Revelation. Read it, first of all, for who it was originally written to, and learn from that, and then see what the Holy Spirit is taking with that message into our lives. So what was this church at Ephesus? It was a historical church, as all of the seven churches are in Revelation 2 and 3. Well, the church at Ephesus was in one of the leading cities of the world. The city of Ephesus was the fourth largest and most influential city in the world. Think about that. It was a world-class cosmopolitan city. Largest city in the world in 96 AD. The largest uh, city in the world was Rome. After that was Alexandria, northern Africa. After that, it was Antioch of Syria. And then number four was Ephesus. That will give you an idea of how important a city this was. After that, the next leading city was Waimanalo, number five. I'm just kidding. Very important city. Um, in terms of an economic center, it was one of the leading seaports. It had a great seaport, and people from all over the world came there. And it was a major center for banking. It was a financial power. In terms of uh, education, it had one of the leading libraries. And it was a center of leading education for the day. And in terms of arts and uh, sports, some of us will identify with, uh, it had, uh, it had an um, amphitheater that seated for that day 24,000 people. This is 96 AD. I mean, if you were going to have a Super Bowl, you, would, you could have it in Ephesus. It had one of the, the largest stadiums. And it hosted the Pan-Ionian Games as an athletic event, which were only rivaled by the Greek Olympics. I mean, this was a leading cosmopolitan happening city. Um, in terms of religion... It was one of the centers of the, the, the emperor worship, the, the cult of worshiping the emperor. And we saw in previous weeks that Domitian was this egomaniac who, who didn't wait till he died for the Senate to declare him to be God. He declared himself God in his own life. And the apostle Paul, the, the apostle John was actually exiled because he wouldn't bow the knee to the deity of Domitian. All he had to do was go up and Domitian's temple and throw a pinch of incense on the altar and say, Kairos, Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. But he wouldn't do that because only Jesus is Lord. And because of that, he was persecuted for his faith. So this was a, there were lots of temples, lots of gods, but for Christians who say, no, there's only one, one person worthy of my love and my adoration and my worship, and I will not bow the knee to Domitian, and I will not bow the knee to another idol, Zeus or Jupiter or whatever other god is being worshipped. No, only Jesus. That got them into trouble, and we'll see. That was part of the experience of the church at Ephesus. But it wasn't just emperor worship. We're going to see that Ephesus had one of what at the time was considered the seven wonders of the world. Seven, the temple to Artemis. Who's Artemis? She's this Greek goddess of fertility. And um, in, a, in, a, in a place that emphasized uh, um, female dominance over male, they, they had this amazing temple. I'll show you a picture of it in a moment. But that was part of the worship of the city, and it totally impacted the, the economy. 
We'll see how, how that happened in the life. This was a major, influential, leading, cosmopolitan city. And in that city emerged the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus, whom the Holy Spirit is going to speak to, and he's going to speak to our lives through the church at Ephesus. Now, the church at Ephesus, where did it come from? It was a, at the time, it was the, the most influential church in Christendom. What had happened was the Christian faith, this is now 96 AD, the Christian faith had started and its central base was Jerusalem. Over time it moved up to Antioch in Syria. And then it moved to Ephesus. During the time of this book being written, after that it moved to Kailua. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you see what happened was at the time that John wrote, his God, wrote the, uh, the letter to the Revelation, it was the most influential, certainly of the seven churches that are addressed, but of all Christendom at that time. This was a very important, influential church. How did it start? It started, you can read about it, in Acts chapter 18 and verse 19, or chapters 18 and 19. The Apostle Paul, with Priscilla and Aquila, two of his co-workers, they go to Ephesus and they start the church in Ephesus. Paul moves on and he leaves uh, Priscilla and Aquila, his co-workers, and they nurture that church. In fact, they train up a man named Apollos, who's a powerful preacher, both in Ephesus and then later other places as well. So it's founded that way. Two and a half, or uh, later what happens is Paul comes back to Ephesus and he spends two and a half years in this church in Ephesus that's going to be addressed. The longest the Apostle Paul ever spent in one place, Two and a half years in Ephesus. He saw the strategic value of this city and of this church. And he trained leaders and he took the gospel so that that whole region, region of Asia Minor was impacted by the gospel. He had such a powerful ministry. The church in Ephesus had such a powerful ministry in that major city, that influential city, that guess what? It disrupted the economy. Think about that. It Why? Because the economy was built on... It was built on... Um, the worship of Artemis and a lot of the, uh, the um, uh, crafts and, and, and industry was built upon selling these people who came to worship at the temple of Artemis and uh, Paul was preaching Christ. So many people were becoming Christians that they weren't buying the goods and they, you can read about it in, in Acts 19. What happened was the uh, guild, the workers, they rose up and arrived and said, you're destroying our economy. And they tried to find Paul, and they, they rounded up two of his buddies and took him to the amphitheater. And Paul had to fly, leave town because of the power of the, the church there. I want to take for a pause, pause for a moment and show you some pictures. I meant to do this earlier, but we'll draw them up on the screen. The first picture is uh, the Temple of Domitian. I showed you this a couple of weeks ago. This was, this is, you can go to the archaeological remains of the city of Ephesus today, and this is what you'll see. This is what's left of this powerful temple that was a center of cult worship in the city being written in today's passage. Here's a modern re rendering of it, or an uh, artist's rendering of it based on the, uh, the archaeology. It looked maybe something like this. As they uh, piece it together, you can see a very uh, um, influential building, a very powerful uh, architectural building, a very leading center of emperor worship. The next, scene, the next slide is, I believe, the uh, this is the main street today. If you go to Ephesus, it was, this is the archaeological remains. It was a happening city. This was the main street of this influential city in the first century. And uh, the next picture is um, the library 
Uh, I had one of the leading libraries, and uh, I don't know if you can see her there, but just uh, I got a wonderful uh, lady named Martha who's standing uh, between the pillars. But this was the library that was built in Ephesus because it was a leading educational center. The next picture, I think, is the, um, yes, and that's a little bit hard to see, but carved into the hillside is the amphitheater. This is where Paul's friends were arrested and where there's a riot in the city, but it was built for the arts. It was built for athletics. It was uh, a major city of the day, and you can go and see the remains. The next slide is um, what's left of the Temple of Artemis. This is where they know the Temple of Artemis is. They've got the archaeological remains, but as they've pieced together the size of the columns and, and the base of this temple was two football fields. And that I can identify. That's a huge temple. Take a look at how the artists have uh, rendered what the temple. This is why people came from all over the world, and this was a powerful place of, of worship and pagan worship, where the this female goddess, who was the goddess of fertility, and it was all about sensuality and sexuality. It was very immoral, but uh, they actually found the uh, statue of Artemis that was in this temple. And this is, uh, you can go there and see it in the museum. She looks like this, and again, she's about 10 feet tall. Uh, there's Martha standing next to her, and if you had an up close, all of those are all bare, exposed breasts on her, those what look like lumps. It's, it's very erotic, it's very sensual, and that's what the temple of Artemis, and this was a major part of their economy that Paul and the Christians got in trouble with because they threatened the economy because people wouldn't buy those statues and worship the goddess Artemis. The next picture is what's remained, um, uh, haven't got there yet, but what at the end of the century before Paul, before John is exiled, he becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And uh, this is a 6th century building that was built later. It's there in Ephesus today. It's the remains of that 6th century building that was built in honor. It's St. Basilica, St. John Basilica. It's a church in honor of St. John because he was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And one of the wings of the church was devoted to guess who? Mary. Uh, and uh, I think the last slide I just want to show you here, this is an artist rendering or a model of the, this church that was built in honor of John. All of this to say this was an influential church. It was founded and, and nurtured by uh, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. After Paul had to flee for his life, he appointed Timothy, his son in the Lord, to pastor and lead the church there. Timothy was murdered by the Romans towards the end of the century. And then um, John himself, the Apostle John, was the, the, the pastor of that church, the spiritual leader of that church. And he had been entrusted, as you remember, to care for Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was a member of the church. I thought about that this last week. Wouldn't that be awesome? How'd you like to be in a church where Christmas service, we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And by the way, Mary's sitting right there. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, what a church founded by Paul, pastored by Timothy, pastored by the Apostle John. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a member of the church. What a church. What a significant, influential church. So what's the message of the risen Lord Jesus to the church of Ephesus, this powerful, influential church? Well, we read it in our text. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars, the, word, the one who has sovereign power over his churches and over the universe, in his right hand and walks among the seven. He's got the whole world in his hands. 
and he walks among his people. His power and his presence. Just remind, this is who's speaking. But what does he say to the church of Ephesus and what does he say to you and me? I know your deeds. I'm walking among you. I see what's going on. I know your challenges. I know your pressures. I know your good things. I know where you need to be corrected. I know everything about you. I see you from the inside out. And he says this. I see your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. They're false apostles, and you found them to be false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name. He commends the church. He affirms the church. He praises the church. He says, I know your hard work. I know that you do church as a team and do church as a family and so many of you are involved in serving with your gifts and your heart and your time and you work hard. And that's a good thing and I praise you for it. And I know your, um, your sound doctrine. You've, you've tested the false teachings and, and, and rejected them. And you stand for God's truth and you guard the gospel and you preach the word. And that's a great thing. That's a great thing for a church to be. And I know you've done, put up with hardships for this church in Ephesus. Who knows what specific kind of hardships. But we see with John, he was persecuted, had to leave his family, his church, his friends, and spend the rest of his life rotting away, literally, on the island of Patmos. I know your hardships, New Hope, Kylo. I know what you've been through. I know the pandemic. I know the pressures. I know what it means when you witness for Jesus at work and the isolation and the rejection that you may feel. I know what's going on in your lives. And those are all good things. And this is a great church. But he says this. He says this. Please don't miss this. With all of these affirmations, with all of these good things with the church, he says this. Yet here's what I need to correct. Yet I hold this against you. Catch this. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. Your doctrine is great. You work hard. You're enduring. You're committed. You're faithful. You're reliable. But I see into your heart and you've lost that loving feeling, that affection, that intimacy. You're doing all the right stuff, but I, I have to speak to you about where your heart is at. That's what he says to the church in Ephesus. That's what he says to us. And he gives us instruction. Consider how far you have fallen. Remember where you were at. And then he says, repent, which simply means to make a course correction. Change direction. You've been going this way. You've got to change direction and go the other way. Do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, if you don't change correction, you're going to lose your light. You're going to lose your influence. You're going to lose your, your impact for Christ's kingdom in the world. I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, those who had poisoned the church with false teaching. You hate them, which I also hate. But he says this, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, to the one who goes back to their first love, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, 
which is in the paradise of God, the tree of life. It was there in the Garden of Eden. It's there in the new creation. It's the source of life. And he gives a promise of a reward. Please don't miss this, if I can summarize it. Please catch this. Please have ears to hear. The risen Christ speak to my life and to your life. He says basically this, if I can summarize. Above all, I love you and I want to be your first love. Above all, your doctrine is great. You work hard. You're faithful. You're committed. You endure difficulties. But this is, in a sense, Jesus had everything he wanted except the one thing he wanted. And that was all of those things to flow from a heart of affection and tenderness and intimacy. Do you get the picture of who Jesus is? He's the lover. He's the divine lover who's seeking the love of his bride. We get that. That's what lovers do. That's what lovers do. When I met Martha, I fell head over heels in love with her. I wanted to spend time with her. No expense was too much, although both of us were students, didn't have a lot of cash, would spend money on her, you know, wanted to, to, to uh, learn more about her, get to know her, spend time with her, all of those things. And what I wanted from her was the same sense of affection and care and attentiveness that we both fell in love and said, I want to spend the rest of our lives together. And those of us that are being married, you know how easy it is to lose that loving feeling, to just end up going through the motions, to just be roommates and sharing life but not have affection and tenderness and intimacy and care. You have to rekindle that. You have to build that. You have to invest in that. It's not automatic. It's the same relationship with God. And who knows what happened? I don't think the Ephesian believers sat down and said, you know what, I'm going to be choose, I'm going to choose to be just cold to the Lord. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll show up at church and I'll do my duty and I'll, I'll uh, participate with the programs and I'll go through the motions, but I'm going to choose just to have my heart wander. None of us, it just slips away over time. It has to be rekindled. And Jesus calls us in love and he says, I appreciate your hard work, New Hope Kailua. I appreciate the way you're committed. I appreciate the way that you give yourselves and you endure hardships and you stand for my word in the community. And, but what I'm really looking for is all of that to flow out of a first love heart, a first love heart. So how do you cultivate that first love heart where Jesus becomes the object of our affection and our intimacy and our closeness? I want to share with you a short video of uh, one of our college students. You'll be blessed by this. Micah Litzy. Micah is on the mainland his first year of college. What a time to foster your first love for Jesus. Take a listen to um, my, Micah's testimony. You'll be encouraged by this. Hey, church family. So today I'm going to quickly share with you guys the ways and tools which God has given me to keep him first and foremost in my day-to-day -day life. If I'm being completely honest, in my first semester of true independence at college, it's been really easy for me to get caught up with other things, and I haven't made as much time for God as I think I truly should have. But this has revealed something great to me in my walk with Christ as a young adult. And it's that God uses fellowship and the people that he has surrounded me with in day-to-day -day life to draw me closer to his face. I'm also very thankful to have as great of a family as I do because when they began to see me stray from my relationship with God, they weren't afraid to set me back in line spiritually, in love of course. So part of what makes this place home base for me in Hawaii is my literal biological ohana, as well as you guys, my church ohana. Through the conversations that I have with all of you both inside and out of church, especially during these trying and difficult times for all of us, I've been inspired to pick myself up from some pretty low places to put God first again, because there is no better place for me in my life 
than when I fully lean on God's understanding instead of my own. The maintenance of that first love with Christ will take daily investment in prayer, intentional connection with other members of the body of Christ, and time spent in reading and reflection of God's word. But it is so much more worth it than whatever else you could be preoccupied with. I frequently found myself saying, you don't have time, Micah, you don't have time for the Bible, you don't have time to talk to God, you don't have time to go to church this Sunday, to go to that small group that reached out to you. So knowing that lots of us struggle with that same voice in the back of our head at times, uh, here's my challenge to you. Try your absolute hardest to make time for God. You're on His mind all the time, and He's made every sacrifice to reach out to you time and again. And he's hoping that you'll give back but a portion of your time to him. And is our God not the most deserving? And so I thank God for how he maintains his hold on me through you guys. And how each of you truly encourage me, edify the body of Christ, and exemplify what it means to maintain that first love for God that we should never lose sight of. Have a young man uh, challenge all of us, encourage all of us, because um, I think there's a rightful pride. Aren't you proud of Micah and, and you know, Toby and uh, Skye as, as parents? It's just a beautiful thing of him talking about the family of God, helping him keep close and his immediate biological family. That's a great thing for all of us. And he talks about investing daily, spending time, the word, prayer, um, church, all of that, all of those are elements that, that help him keep close to God. And I know this is a reality that all of us face. How do each of us keep close to Jesus, keep him our first love? It doesn't happen automatically. It must be intentional. And we get very clear teaching from Jesus himself about how we can do that. Remember where you were at. Change the direction of your life and go back and do the things you did at first. In other words, remember a time in your life when you were most deeply in love with Jesus. What were you doing at the time? Go back and do the same things. It's that simple. So for me, when I think about a time, and there are a couple or three times, but I, in my young adult years was a time where I had a very strong passion for Jesus. So what was I doing? Well, I was at a secular university, and there were a group of us, some were in the physical education department, some of us were athletes on different teams, but we sort of came together, and, and we had relationship. And part of that was a sense of desperation. There aren't many Christians around here. When you find one, they become a dear brother or sister, and they called us the God Squad. Uh, the people on our teams and the people in the phys ed department, they called us the God Squad, but that was a badge of honor to me to be identified with the God Squad. And we prayed together, and, and because um, there were so many influences in the culture around us, sexual immorality, drinking, party, lifestyle, all of that kind of stuff, we desperately needed each other, and we needed Jesus in, the, in our midst to strengthen us. And uh, out of that, I had the courage to tell other people about Jesus. <laughs> I actually went to this godless head football coach, and I was a member of the football team, and. And I asked him if I could have a chapel, a voluntary chapel, for, and he thought I was a complete idiot. <laughs> why, why would any young guy want to have people get together and, and, and learn about Jesus? And I thought, wow, when we went to different cities, when we went to Vancouver, when we went to Edmonton, when we went to Winnipeg, I could invite professional 
uh, football players to come and speak at our chapel because I wanted my teammates to know about Jesus. And I knew they would listen to professional athletes because they had respect for them, even though their lifestyles were totally contrary. But the point is this. I had courage. I had faith. I stepped out of my comfort zone. I was considered an idiot by people that I wanted the respect of, my head coach. <laughs> and yes, I had a heart to serve. And I was involved with a vibrant church by God's grace. And, and I went on Sunday mornings and I, I chose to serve with the junior high group. That took me out of the sermon. That took me out of the, the major part of the service. And I, I wanted to hear the word of God, but I had to have a heart to serve and to help the faith of other people. In fact, back in those days, I went to church at Sunday night too. Some of, many of you are, don't remember that. You're too young. But back in the day, churches had two services on Sunday, one in the morning, one in the evening. And I thought, I'm going to serve in the morning, but then I'm going to go out on Sunday evening because I want to hear the word of God. I want to hear Jesus speak to me through the word of God. We had a preacher who preached the word. And my friend said, what? you're going to church twice on a Sunday? Why would you go Sunday evening? is because I wanted to have an open heart to the Word of God. And it wasn't just in the church service, but it was getting my first Bible. And I was in my 20s, so I didn't have to go to church. My parents, I wasn't living with my parents. When I lived with my parents, the family went to church. <laughs> but now I was making my own decisions. And I got that Bible, that big Ryrie study Bible with big notes, and I wrote notes in it, and I read it, and I tried to understand it, and I learned from it, and the Word was alive to me. And I spent precious time with Jesus and I, I wouldn't rush it and I wouldn't hurry it and I'd pray and share my heart with him and, and the Holy Spirit says to me go back and do the things you did <laughs> when you were deeply in love with Jesus it's the same kinds of things for all of us I've heard people say it's back to the basics yeah it is basics it's letting him speak to us through his word personally relationships that support and encourage one another that help us move out of our comfort zone so that we experience Jesus in new ways. And yes, um, um, standing and, and sharing um, his love, his message with others. Various things that we can do, and I haven't even mentioned music, but I've recognized this last week. I've got this little, I almost want to say, I've got this woman in my house. She's not a woman. She's a little tool. Her name's Alexa, but she's got a woman's name. You guys know Alexa. Well, if I'm just hanging out or, or uh, cooking the meal or I just say Alexa play Christian music and she lifts my heart to Jesus because she brings on Christian music right there in my own living room and I don't have to have a band and, and I don't even have to have a, a player but she the technology helps me stay close to Jesus and I find myself singing those songs to Jesus and linking my heart to Jesus there's so many things that we can do. Some of us love to just go for walks on the beach. Some of us, when we're driving, can just plug in and, and have the word of God read to us when we're driving. So many things that we can do. But when, what does it mean for your life? When you look back and say, when I was deeply in love with Jesus, when I was most passionate, when I felt he was so close that I could put my arm around him and not feel him physically, but I just knew he was there with me. What were you doing at the time? Just go back and do the same things and rekindle that love. Jesus, the risen, glorified king, the divine lover, says to you, I love all these good things you're doing in your life. And I want to commend you for them. But most of all, I want to be your first love. 
I want you to love me with affection, with tenderness, with intimacy. That's what lovers do. So as we conclude this morning, do you hear the divine lover speaking to you? Do you hear him saying, you used to be so attentive to me. You used to spend time, you used to open your heart to me. You used to read the scriptures wanting to know what I was saying to you. You used to linger and, and share your heart with me. You used to talk to me through the day. You used to have a heart for people that were lost so that you could share my love with them. Go back, go back, go back. And when you do, I have even more life for you. He who you will eat from the, the tree of life. Who is, what's the tree? The tree of life is ultimately Jesus. He's the life. It's not some physical tree. Maybe a manifestation, a metaphor, a symbol, but Jesus is the life, and he's the life of the new kingdom. And he says, for those who give me their first love, guess what they get? They get more of me. They get more of life because I'm the source of life. I'm the life giver. Let's stand together and uh, respond. The question is for each of us this morning. Do we have ears to hear what the divine lover says to us? He wants you to give him your first love, and he's worthy of it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this powerful word, for the revelation of who you are. And Lord Jesus, it's an amazing thing that when you look with penetrating insight and a, a lover's heart into our lives, that the first thing you're looking for is a heart's response of love and affection and closeness and tenderness with you. What a beautiful thing, Lord, for our risen, glorified, heavenly king, our high priest who meets all of our spiritual needs, the one who walks among us knows every detail of our lives. Lord, may we love you in a manner worthy of who you are. We ask this for Jesus' sake and for our blessing. Amen. Have a blessed week, church family. Walk with Jesus. Love him in a way that he's worthy this week. We'll see you again next week or in a connect group before then. Bless you.